I stopped to check directions on my phone, as I often did in that area. Something about those endless suburban roads always had me feeling vaguely lost, a sensation temporarily alleviated by the sighting of any given landmark that I recognized from prior trips. All the houses looked the same, all the cars looked the same, and the streets were always quiet and empty at night. The map on my phone showed me that I'd pulled into the wrong suburb. Again. I actually recognized this one from last week, when I'd pulled in here by accident the first time. The curve of the street and the placement of the cars had seemed familiar, and that was why I thought I'd been on the right track. Yawning, I took a big gulp of coffee and idly scanned the neighborhood, a patchwork of velvet shadows couched between large bushes and inky darkness draped under the eaves of heavy trees, all set against cutting beams and gentle spheres of light cast randomly by unevenly spaced lamps. I watched, mildly intrigued, as the silhouette of a dog ran by, skirting through the yards and slipping between shadowed bushes. It made no noise opting instead to move hurriedly past the edge of the neighborhood and off into the maze of trees beyond. It occurred to me that I might have just seen the escape of someone's beloved pet, so I yawned again, took another gulp of lukewarm coffee, and climbed out of my car. The cessation of engine noises and headlights brought an immediate collapse of sensation cloying darkness and vast silence gripped me and I made an uncomfortable walk toward the nearest beam of pale yellow light. Standing uncomfortably within it, I peered around, wondering why I felt so oddly alone and exposed. There were dozens of people sleeping in the houses all around me. In case of unexpected danger, a single shout would rouse them all. Why then did I feel surrounded by solitude and desolation. I decided to forget the dog. It was long gone, and something here felt very wrong. Turning my head back toward my vehicle, I accidentally bumped a car near the sidewalk, and it shifted nearly an inch. Confused, I pushed it again, and it shifted as I put my weight against it. It was heavy, certainly, but not immovable. Peering inside the car, I saw all the seats and interior I expected. Leaning underneath, I shined my phone upward. The innards of the car were all empty. It was just a shell, a prop. Seized by an impossible notion, I crept up on the front lawn of the nearest house and peered through one of the dark windows, my head rushing with the strangeness of the act. Inside, I saw all the furniture and the trappings of a normal suburban house almost turned away, disappointed. But as I put my hands against the window to see better, the frame of the glass fell inward, smashing to the floor within with a tremendous crash. I stood in place, peering around the dark neighborhood. No dogs barked. No lights came on. The area remained deathly silent. Convinced that my insane notion was more real than not, I climbed inside the now very open window. The furniture within broke easily. The nicely upholstered couches and chairs had no strength, no internal construction, just more props. 
The television sat empty of mechanics. The fridge had been gutted. Climbing the stairs, I moved to the second floor, intent on making sure nobody was inside the house. I froze as I saw them lying in bed. An older man and woman, asleep. Had I just broken into someone's house? Had I had too much caffeine, gone delusional? As I stood frozen, it occurred to me that I could hear no snoring or breathing. I waited for several minutes. No sleeper shifted. Trembling with adrenaline, I crept closer. I wasn't sure of my own intent. I, I stood above them in a pale darkness, staring down at the face of an old man barely illuminated by a sliver of light from the window. He seemed real enough, but I had to know. I reached out a single finger to poke him. He was warm, and his skin felt completely real. I was starting to believe my own caffeine-induced hallucination theory, and if so, it was probably time to bolt before he woke up and called the police. I stepped awkwardly on the edge of the carpet near the bed and fell forward, finding myself caught in a morass of strange, warm sheets. As I pushed and lifted myself out of it, I realized with an ice-cold shock that they weren't sheets at all. The old man's body had collapsed inward into a mess of loose skin and flesh. I stared at his face as it deflated, warm internal stench escaping through his loose eyes, nose, and mouth. Was this horrible corpse skin a prop to? Who the hell would have gone through the trouble of building such an intensely detailed recreation of a neighborhood? And why make such a disgusting shell of a person? What purpose did this place serve? These questions ran through my head as I bolted down the stairs and back out through the window. I knew my mistake, and reasoning the instant I tried to open my car, only to have it shift under the force of my hand. This place hadn't been built hollow. Something was consuming machine and man from the inside out, leaving empty mockeries of suburban life behind. Had that dog been running from... it? I bolted then, sticking to the middle of the street and constantly looking around in a barely sensible panic. I didn't know what I was looking out for, whether a creature, a spirit, or a force of nature, but it had hollowed out my car while I'd been inside that house, so I knew it still had to be near. I hit the main road at the suburb entrance with a sigh of relief. My pounding heart, burning lungs, and tired legs urged me to rest. So I kneeled under a dim orange streetlight for a moment and stared back at the hollow neighborhood with wide eyes. Nothing moved, as far as I could tell. As I began to recover my energy, still wondering if I hadn't just had a delusional episode, I felt the hair on the back of my neck begin to stand up, as if my animal instincts were trying to warn me of some unknown danger. I peered closer at the dark suburb, scanning the shadows until a thought occurred to me. Shot through by terror, I tore off my shirt and threw it on the pavement. There, 
On the back of my shirt, illuminated by the dim, orange streetlight overhead, sat several crawling insects of a horrific kind I'd never seen. Four inches wide each, shaped like spiky coins in jet black. They resembled some sort of oversized nightmarish tick. I watched in disgust as one shot forth a serrated proboscis and attempted to pierce through the fabric, only to hit the pavement below. I took off running again, slapping and hitting myself at every little sensation on my skin, terrified that those otherworldly ticks had found me again. I did get away, but I doubt I'll ever be able to sit still again. Every time I feel a prickle, every time my hair stands on end, I fear it'll be those hollow ticks again, creeping down the back of my neck, crawling along my skin. I have nightmares that I'll feel one tiny little stab, and then another, and then another before a sense of pulling and lightness wells up in me, my blood, tissues, and organs being vacuumed out and consumed by hundreds of tiny little mouths indiscriminately hungry, thousands of tiny little pincers strong enough to consume flesh, wood, and metal alike. The thing that still haunts me even days later is the fact that nobody's noticed. There's at least an entire false suburb sitting out there, all appearance, no substance, and nobody has raised an alarm. There haven't been any articles, no radio alerts, no police actions. Worse still is the fact that I would risk being thought insane to report myself, but I can't find my way back to that particular suburb. They all look the same. When I was in junior high, I had an unusual hobby, breaking into people's homes. I didn't do it for money. In fact, I never stole anything at all. I left no sign of my presence. I did it for one reason. The thrill of being on the edge of disaster. To test the limits of what I could get away with. So... Sometimes I would go out at night or skip school and ride over to the heights to see what kind of mischief I could muster. The way I saw it, there was no harm in it, as long as I never got caught. Had it not been for the unique characteristics of the place I lived at at the time, it would have never occurred to me to start sneaking into people's houses. My family lived near a neighborhood we called the Heights, that for half the year became a ghost town. The area consisted almost entirely of vacation homes, which were only occupied for a few months in the winter for skiing and in the summer for hiking and recreation of that sort. In the off-seasons, the place was almost entirely empty, apart from landscapers and some other maintenance and construction crews. When I was around eight, when people began to build the mountainside homes, I would go check them out after the builders had finished for the evening. They were interesting houses. Some of them were three- or four-floor homes with incredible views of the ski slopes. I never got to see the inside of a finished one until much later, however. One day when I was 13, I was walking alone through the heights, enjoying the strange tranquility of the world, conspicuously absent of other people, when the idea to let myself into one of those vacant constructs popped up to my naive brain. It seemed a shame 
to let them go to waste. I would just be putting the places to good use. They were made to be enjoyed after all, I remember thinking. Most of the time when you have a bad idea, you don't know it's a bad idea until things don't turn out the way that you hoped they would. This wasn't one of those times. I knew this was risky and stupid, and that was the reason I found it so enticing. I got my hands on some lock picks and started practicing on several different locks. By the time fall had arrived, I felt I was ready to move into my first break-in. For the first time, I went under the cover of night. The neighborhood was deserted as usual, but I felt highly exposed as I crept through the streets. Nervous, I found a target at the far end of the neighborhood, near the end of a street that was fairly dark. There was a for sale sign beside the house. I figured I would start with something that was as safe as I could get. I checked to make sure there wasn't a security system, at least as far as I could tell, and I approached the back door. Having no experience with this, I didn't know if I was being far too cautious or if I was actually in over my head. My heart pounded out of my chest as I got to my lock-picking tools and went to work. It took me a minute, but just like that, I picked the lock and went inside. It felt so deliciously diabolical of me to set foot in someone's home uninvited. Though the thrill was appealing to me, criminality didn't really come naturally to me. This was the first really illegal thing I'd ever done, and I took the possibility of getting caught extremely seriously. I didn't stay very long, but I made sure to take a tour and enjoy the adrenaline. I exited the same way I came in, and made my way home undetected. Never before had I felt so alive. And so it went. From there, I continued to hone my skills and push the envelope of what I would break into. As I got more comfortable, I had to increase the risk in order to feel the rush again. I soon realized how safe I really was on my first undertaking. Eventually, I got to the point where I felt comfortable breaking into houses in broad daylight after I witnessed the residents leave. I was always able to escape, admittedly sometimes quite narrowly, before anyone came in and saw me. The seasonally occupied homes practically ceased to scare me at all. Oftentimes, I would do my homework in these houses, spend an hour watching TV, and then leave without anyone noticing. I felt almost like I owned all these houses. Like the entire complex known as the Heights was my home. Over the next couple of months, I started spending so much of my time there that my girlfriend Amy started asking me where I was going all the time. Perhaps foolishly, I decided to let her in on my little secret. After all, she was my girlfriend, and I trusted her not to rat me out. Well, as it turned out, her ratting me out wasn't the only thing I had to worry about. The problem was she really wanted to come with me, and I didn't know how to say no, even though the window of the spring season was nearing its end. Early on a Saturday morning, I planned to take her to a place I'd been to before, a really nice place with a log cabin sort of appearance on the outside. As I remembered it, most of the house was on a single floor, with a wide open floor plan, I thought she'd appreciate. We met beforehand at my house. 
She showed up wearing jeans and a blue and gray plaid shirt over a navy tank top. Blue Converse. She was wearing the necklace I gave her last Valentine's Day. It was a little black stone in the shape of a heart and a silver chain. Hey, you, I said and spread my arms. Hey, she said in her soft, cute voice. After a quick hug, we set off on foot. On the way, I tried one last time to talk her out of it. I told her how risky it was, asked her to imagine what would happen if we got caught, reminded her the spring season was almost over, yada, yada, yada. Eventually, she had heard enough. She leaned in close to my face and cut me off by licking my mouth while I was mid-sentence. It caught me off guard, and I almost fell over in shock and started laughing. When I recovered, I did at least get her to promise to take what we were about to do seriously. From my backpack, I handed her some sunglasses and my black Yankees cap. We didn't really need disguises, but I thought it might get her in the right frame of mind. We kept walking, and when we could finally see the house, I turned to her and said, This is it. From here on, you need to be alert at all times. She gave an affirming nod. We approached the side entrance of the house, and I quickly picked the lock and we slipped inside. From the moment I stepped inside that house with her, I was consumed by apprehension. Something didn't feel right. Maybe it was the time, maybe it was her attitude, but whatever it was that caused my worry, I decided to ignore it. I tried my best to sound relaxed as I gave her a tour of the house. There was no garage, but the driveway in front was wide enough to fit three cars or so side by side. We entered through the left side of the house when viewed from the street. Through the side door, you're greeted by a tiny mudroom with a closet of coats and a shoe rack on the left side. Straight ahead is a hallway with two doors on either side. The left two doors are an office and a bathroom, and on the right we have two children's bedrooms, I said as I started down the hallway. This is so crazy, Amy remarked. It was the first of several remarks of this sort she'd made as we made our way throughout the house. The office on the left was spotlessly clean. It looked like it was rarely used, even when there were people staying there. There was a dark stained wooden desk with nothing on it and a black leather office chair. The room had tan shag carpeting and... On the far wall was a fully stocked bookshelf and a window. Like the office, the bathroom was kept practically empty and meticulously clean. There was nothing but the sink, toilet, and shower. Two kids' rooms had a single twin bed in each, and one further from the door had a small CRT TV. They were both somewhat messy, unlike the office and the bathroom, and both were decorated as little girls' rooms. And here we have the beautiful open living area, I said as I left the hallway. At the end of the hallway, the house opened up to an expansive living room with 15-foot ceilings, which was open to the kitchen off to the right and semi-open to the dining room to the left, which was only separated by a large curved archway. The living room had a box of children's toys on the floor where a throw rug sat covering the well-kept hardwood floors. Few of the toys were lying out on the ground. Besides that, the living room consisted of three seats, a couch, a chassis lounge, and an armchair.
There was also a large and dramatic fireplace in the center of the room. High above hung a large ceiling fan with wooden blades. The kitchen was bright from the big windows above the counters and boasted a dark marble countertop and first-rate appliances. There was another half-bathroom on the way to the master's suite, which was down a short hallway to the left of the fireplace. As I reached for the door handle to the master bedroom, Amy latched onto my arm. I can't believe we're really doing this. She sounded more giddy than frightened. This time I let the room speak for itself. On the wall above the bed hung an enormous canvas with a mountain landscape and oil paint. The floors were a lighter stained hardwood than the living area. The bed frame was made of wood left to look natural. The four bedposts were like trees rising up from the floor almost to the ceiling. The bedspread was a marvelous white which seemed to glow as the natural light poured in from the large windows on the far side of the room. Two light wooden end tables supported clay-colored lamps with white shades and insert light fixtures adorned the ceilings. Wow, this place is incredible. That painting, she approached the bed. We both started to let our guards down a little. I finished up the tour with her and then we settled down in one of the little kids' rooms. It was safer there where things weren't kept so neat like the master bedroom, less likely to leave a trace. Amy started perusing the girls' closets, and she found an odd assortment of clothes, and an even stranger assortment of sizes. She pulled out one outfit that looked like it belonged to a five-year-old. It was a tiny red dress with a white flower on the bottom right. Then she ground out some pajama pants and a shirt that would fit her. I guess when you only show up twice a year to a place, you don't necessarily remember to clear out your old clothes. Then she found the silly purple pageant dress that she insisted I let her try on. To this day, I have no idea why I agreed. She actually looked pretty good in it, but then again, I thought she always looked good. She kept it on as she turned on the TV and plopped herself down on the twin bed, and I joined her there. We were lying together watching cartoons for a while when I heard something. I didn't know what it was exactly. Car door, maybe, but I knew someone was coming. The TV was off instantly. I exploded out of the bed, made a hard left down the hallway, and was halfway out the door before I knew what I was doing. And then I stopped and went back for Amy. She must have stopped to change out of the crazy dress she tried on and never changed out of. But there was no time. I stared down the hallway, toward the opening in the living room, praying that Amy would emerge from the bedroom before anyone appeared there. I heard the front door open, and someone hurriedly dropped their bag on the floor as they entered. I floated silently back into the room with Amy and closed the door most of the way. It slid closed smoothly without a sound. Amy had finished changing. I gestured for her to stay quiet. Only a few seconds passed before disaster struck. I had my back to the door as it flung open. I turned around and saw a tall woman with blonde hair in her late thirties. You can probably imagine the look on her face when she saw us. At first she jumped out of her skin, then she looked at us with an expression of having been thoroughly violated as though she would never feel the same again. Before we could speak, I blurted out, We didn't steal anything. We didn't do anything, I swear, Amy echoed. I remembered thinking we had horrendous luck. 
Why, when arriving in their vacation home, would an adult enter alone and immediately head for the children's room? Amazingly, the woman's expression seemed to soften slightly as she spoke. I guess she must have thought we were just kids and didn't feel threatened. What the hell are you two doing in my house? We just wanted to see what it was like. We didn't touch anything, I promise. I said as I pushed past her, dragging Amy behind me. The woman didn't offer any resistance as we left. She had a dumbfounded look on her face now. We ran out the house and down the street back into the direction of my house. When we were out of earshot of the house, I screamed, What the hell, Amy? I told you you gotta be ready. But of course, I was the one to blame. She didn't answer and we just kept running until we got tired. My anger at her faded and it was replaced by a deep desolation. It was over. All of it. My world was spinning. I realized how lucky we were that there was only one woman and she just let us leave. I tried to tell myself we might not even get in trouble for it, like I could believe that. What do we do now? Amy asked plainly. She appeared calm, placid even. No, she was not okay. Maybe she was in shock or something. I don't know, I don't know, uh... Shit. Let's just both go home. Call me, okay? It's gonna be fine. We're still alive. We're gonna be okay. I'll talk to you soon. Just run home. It'll be all good. I didn't believe it, and neither did she. But maybe just saying it enough times would make it true. Okay. We went our separate ways, and when I got home, I desperately awaited her phone call. My family grew concerned as I waited by the phone, no doubt with a look of despair smeared across my face. But I told them to mind their own business, and they didn't prod me further. I waited and waited, but her call never came. So I called her. No answer. I called again later, and her dad picked up. I thought maybe she told her parents what happened, and she was grounded or something. Not likely. It wasn't something she'd do. She had looked pretty shaken, though. Uh, hello, Mr. Ferris. Is Amy there? I remember saying in a polite and innocent way as I could muster. I thought she was with you. I was beginning to worry about her. You don't know where she is? <sighs> Unbelievable. She'd never come home. No, sir, I, I don't. I haven't seen her since... Uh, since lunchtime. We had lunch at my place and then she took off. She said she was going to call me when she got home and she never did, so I called her and got you. And then he said something about how I didn't deserve her and that he was going to make my life hell if anything happened to her and so on. I hung up the phone. I just have to talk to her on Monday at school. Only, she never came home Saturday night. Her dad called the police, and the whole town got involved in the search for Amy Ferris, including me. But I kept Saturday's events to myself. I didn't want to tell the police what we had done Saturday if I didn't have to. 
I hoped Amy would turn up somewhere and all would be well again, but that was just wishful thinking. When they finally found her, she was dead. I couldn't believe it. The feeling of sickness I felt when I heard the news was indescribable. She was found in the woods. She'd been stripped and stabbed to death. But she wasn't the only one they found that day. She was... She was buried alongside 20 other girls aged 4 to 14. Out of all the remains of the girls the police unearthed, she was the only one that had been stabbed to death. All the rest had appeared to have been poisoned. Amy was buried with her shoes, sunglasses, hat, and necklace beside her. The other girls had similar possessions uncovered along with their corpses. Since it was too late anyway, I still didn't go to the police with my information. Instead, I went back to that blonde woman's glorified log cabin myself. The lady was gone. I broke in through the side door again and started walking quietly down the hallway. I turned right into the second bedroom. I opened the closet door and my greatest fears were confirmed. The closet was completely empty. My friend Jordan had been a cop for quite some time now. Something has been bothering her for the last month or so, and recently we finally got her to tell us. The week she began acting sullen and distant, she revealed she received a call about a late-night break-in at a local church. A middle-aged woman in a suit and an older man dressed like a priest stood waiting outside when she and her partner arrived at the location. The two were both very visibly agitated, and the priest quickly told her about the broken glass they'd found around the side of the church. There wasn't supposed to be anyone present that late at night, so they knew it wasn't an accident of some kind. The nearby community had several large and modern churches, and this building was no exception. The building was more like a compound than a church, large enough to provide numerous and varied services. A series of huge windows had her immediately concerned about the safety of approaching the building. Sighting the broken glass from afar, she returned to the car and called her back up. Another car arrived shortly, bringing two more officers and a canine unit. They checked the side of the building, and then, they never show this part on television, she told me with a sigh, she grabbed a broom and had to sweep up the broken glass so that the dogs wouldn't hurt their feet on the way in. With that done, they left one officer out by the cars, and she, her partner, and the officer handling the canine proceeded inside. They immediately disliked the interior. The church was clean, white-walled, and open, but that was exactly the problem. The large open chamber formed what she called a fatal tunnel, leaving the three of them extremely vulnerable if there had happened to be someone still inside. They listened from outside for several minutes, but the dog remained calm and 
No sounds came from inside. After a couple more checks through the windows, they moved in, finding the large community area empty. The three of them quickly chose better positions near doors to the rest of the compound. It was there that Jordan first noticed the odd smell. It was industrial, somewhat. Definitely chemical, and familiar, but difficult to identify. The dog happily sniffed around, but made no alerts. They proceeded into the sanctuary proper by checking between the pews with flashlights one row at a time. The odd smell was weaker there, and the thorough search of the altar in tiny black hallway found nothing. They gave the room one last scan and then closed the large door, sealing the room behind them. The other direction in the church led deeper into a nest of hallways. Clearing corners and securing rooms one by one, they moved through a kitchen and what looked to be classrooms. The further they went, the stronger that odd smell grew. Nearing the end of the complex, they began seeing construction equipment and painting gear. In one of the half-finished rooms at the end of the hallway, a ladder led up into the building's attic. Here, then, was another major hurdle. She sent her partner, the rookie, up first. There were a few tense moments as he kept low and scanned the cluttered expanse with his flashlight, but nothing seemed big enough for a vandal to hide behind. With the dog still calm, she followed her partner up, and they did a slow search to confirm that the attic was empty. Done with the whole building, they returned to the point of entry. One of Jordan's on-the-job fears had always been clearing a building, telling the owners it was safe, and then finding out later they'd missed something, leaving the poor people to walk obliviously in the danger. So, she waited at the end of the hallway just a moment longer, thinking over the layout of the building. She called up the officer outside on her radio to ask if there was a basement. And that was the moment. Someone burst out from one of the rooms they'd cleared. Caught off guard, the large man was an easy tackle, although he seemed terrified. He kept babbling about being punished for his sins, and he kept fighting to escape, so it took both her and her partner to cuff him and convince him to calm down. By the time he lapsed into a confused silence, the strange smell from the hallways had grown overpowering. Curious, she proceeded with her partner into the room from which the man had come. A large black square had now sat clearly visible in the back corner of a hidden door ajar above it. Her flashlight showed an edge lined by duct tape and a freshly painted set of white steps. She carefully climbed down into a small tunnel. Her radio came alive and she quickly turned the volume down and she was glad that she did because the canine handler told her that the man they'd cuffed was babbling about people down there. On edge, she and her partner moved into a low, wide space set in the heavy foundation of the building. Within, they found a series of medical machines hooked up to a large block of what looked like concrete or perhaps heavy plaster, also painted white. Little tubes curled up and along the top of it, while large tubes entered the lower half, all filled with various undefinable substances. Wearily, she cleared the corner of the huge block and confirmed that the room was empty. There were no people, despite what the intruder had claimed, and the smell of plastic and chemicals was worse than ever. She guessed that the duct tape around the trap door had been keeping the smell sealed in. 
It was then she noticed dozens of little white protrusions from the concrete. Something about their arrangement seemed familiar. It was only when they moved slightly that she recognized them as the protruding tips of fifty or sixty fingers. All painted white. It took a moment for the truth of what was happening to sink in. She understood almost immediately that there were people encased in the cement before her. But it took her a few more seconds to comprehend what the machines, tubes, and wires hooked up to the block were for. These people weren't being killed. They were being kept alive. In a flash, she was on her radio warning the officer outside, but he failed to respond, and she and her partner bolted back up the tiny stairs and out through their point of entry. By the cruisers, they found the officer with a knife sticking from his leg and his wrists bound. The priest and the middle-aged woman in a suit were nowhere to be seen, and both their cars were gone. The police are conducting a search, certainly, but the two have yet to be found. She told me that they're keeping the story under wraps while the investigation is ongoing, but she trusted her friends with the tale because she had to tell somebody. The physical details, she said, felt distant like a horror movie. But it was the aftermath that kept her up at night. The rescue staff had carved out the survivors one by one, freeing them from the concrete block with heavy tools, careful cutting, and constant medical care. Each of the young men and women freed from the block had been filthy, burned all over by chemicals from the material they'd been stuck inside, and emaciated beyond description. Corpse-like charred and leaking all sorts of horrendous fluids, they seemed hardly human. It was insane to think that this ongoing torture had been happening beneath the feet of children attending Sunday school. Each freed victim gave varying, varying. Each freed victim gave varying answers as to the time they'd been abducted and imprisoned. The most recent had only been encased for a month, and she was grateful for the rescue. Each successive captive had been buried alive several years before the next. The older two had been trapped in concrete for 18 and 22 years, respectively. The part that kept Jordan up at night, she told us, after downing a shot, was at once freed from the living entombment. They both begged to be put back inside again. Hey everyone. I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. They were a little wild, to be honest. Tonight we had some pretty crazy stories. But I do have a question relating to all three of the stories actually they just happen to all have this theme along with them have you ever broken into anywhere as a teenager as an adult as a kid whatever like maybe a shed in your uncle's yard or somewhere like that i'm just curious i'm not gonna report anyone obviously i have i broke into one community center 
for a church. Kind of similar to what we talked about in the last story, but it wasn't um, the actual church itself. It was just a community center for the church. And, you know, there wasn't really anything interesting in there. It was just a place to cook food and hang out. And we just busted open the lock and hung out in there every once in a while. Me and, like, three or four of my friends. We never got caught, thankfully, but it was really stupid. And now I just kind of feel bad for them having to replace the lock. Anyway, let me know. What's the dumbest thing you ever did as an adolescent? I would love to hear your stories. I'm sure some of you have some wild ones. Let me know down in the comment section below. And as always, stay safe out there.